Thank you for being here with us and at another podcast for Footsteps of the Messiah. Uh, we invite you to send any feedback or suggestions to footstepsofthemessiah at gmail.com. So uh, let's start off with some facts about the month of Kislev that you should know. We're going to talk about the month of Kislev, a little, about, a little bit about some lesser known points about Hanukkah. So we'll get started. Uh, we'll open with prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us by your charges, your commandments, and commands us regarding the study of Torah. So, uh, Kislev is both month number nine and number three. So the Jewish year has at least two heads or beginnings, Nisan in the spring and Tishri in the fall. Uh, counting from Nisan, this is the ninth month, and counting from Tishri, when we observe the High Holidays and the Joyous Festival of Sukkot, Kislev is the third month. Now, this go back, goes back to Exodus 12, Shemot 12, where the calendar was rotated or shifted by uh, a factor of six, or, or a number by the number of six months, and Hashem turned Nisan, instead of letting it be month seven, it, it became month number one, which caused all of the other months to change position by a number of six. So, point number two, Kislev can have 29 or 30 days. The Hebrew months generally alternate in length, and one will have 29 days, and the next will have 30 uh, but the exceptions are Kislev and the preceding month of Kislev, which was Heshvan. Please go back and listen to our podcast on Heshvan, which got really interesting uh, last month. Uh, Heshvan can have both 29 or 30. Um, or option three is they can have 29 and 30 respectively, allowing for the Jewish months to be calibrated. Now, probably in another podcast, I'm going to tackle all of the... Uh, science and math behind the calendar, um, the Hebrew months, and so on, and how they were calculated, and what a Hebrew or Jewish leap year is. But um, if you take a look at uh, articles online, there are a lot of uh, really good, uh, simplistic articles that can explain why Jewish months have 29 or 30 days. But it's basically to keep the calendar in line with the seasons because the calendar was originally not only given by Hashem but uh, was given in such a way that it matched the agricultural year when there was more agriculture going on and more people were in touch with the land and their careers their work was uh, connected to agriculture and the earth so, point three, uh, it never start, Kislev never starts on Shabbat, so that's pretty interesting. Most dates on the Jewish calendar can occur on four out of seven days of the week. Since Heshvan, the month number two, can have either 29 or 30 days. I, I apologize, that was confusing. Heshvan is not month number two anymore. If you're counting from Tishri, Heshvan is month number two. But if you're counting from Nisan, Heshvan is actually month number eight. So... Uh, since Heshvan can have either 29 or 30 days, there are two more possible days for every date in Kislev. Thus, the month can begin on every day of the week except for Shabbat. 
Now, the Great Deluge ended on 27th of Kislev, so the rains of the Great Flood in the time of Noah began on the 17th of Heshvan and continued for 40 days. Thus, the lion's share of the rain took place in Kislev, ending on the 27th of the month. The And what's interesting, this may come up a little bit later, but um, the, the uh, constellation connected to Kislev is Keshet, is the bow. And we're going to find out something special about the rainbow and Kislev in a minute here. Uh, point number five, the month ends in the middle of Hanukkah. So Hanukkah, the festival of lights, begins on the evening preceding the 25th of Kislev and ends eight days later, which means Kislev departs as the Hanukkah lights spread their ever-increasing brightness in the winter dusk. Uh, Kislev is also associated with the supportive letter Samech. The ancient mystical work of Sefer Yetzirah tells us regarding this month that God produced the letter Samech, predominant in sleep, crowned, combined, and formed the bow in the world, and Kislev in the year. This is from the Sefer Yetzirah, chapter 5. The previous month, Cheshvan, has been associated with the biting scorpion and the letter Nun, which stands for Nofel, which means to fall. This month, we are thus uplifted with the letter Samech, which means support. So, here we go. Uh, its astrological sign is the bow, Sagittarius. So, as noted in the Sefer Yetzirah, this month's sign, or Mazal, is the bow, called Keshet. According to the rabbis of the Midrash, this tells us that even if a person's sins are like the poisonous bite of the scorpion, through prayer they can be catapulted to a better place. Some associate this bow with the rainbow shown to Noah after the flood. And I recommend reading the Chabad article, What's the Significance of the Rainbow in Judaism? So, point eight, Kislev has many meanings. Some associate the word Kislev with the word Kesel, which means flank, implying the innate and intuitive desire in God. Others connect it with the word Kesil, which means fool, showing how God even cares for those who have acted foolishly. Point number nine, Ezra presided over a mass gathering in this month. In the early years of the Second Temple era, Ezra called the Jewish people to a special meeting in the courtyard of the temple. As they shivered under the harsh rain, the people agreed to divorce the idolatrous spouses they had married. That's from Ezra chapter 10. And the tenth point here... Um, Kislev 19 was the first Chabad Rebbe, the, the day the first Chabad Rebbe was released from the Tsarist prison in 1798, and that's celebrated as the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidism. Uh, but some other significant days that Chabad celebrates, not that I'm a Chabad member or attendant of Chabad services, but Rosh Chodesh Kislev was the day that the Rebbe returned home in 1977. Uh, the 9th of Kislev was an anniversary of the birth and the passing of the second Chabad Rebbe. And there's some other um, significant dates that Chabad celebrates. Uh, oh, and here's an, uh, sorry, we have 11 and 12. Point 11 was the Mishkan was completed in this month. 
The sages tell us that the construction of the Mishkan was completed during this month. Moses delayed the inauguration, however, until the springtime month of Nisan, which is the month in which Isaac was born. Kislev was recompensed when nearly a thousand years later, the temple was rededicated on Kislev 25 during the Hanukkah events. And that is from the Pasikta Rabati 6.5. Now, the twelfth point is the second temple was founded in the month of Kislev. So we read the prophecy of Haggai 2.18. Pay attention now from this day and before, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day that the temple of the Lord was founded. Pay attention. Now, according to Rashi, this means that they began to add to the first foundation they had built in the days of Cyrus. So, moving on, I wanted to share 13 Hanukkah facts that everyone should know. So, eight nights equal miracle lights. Um, why is Hanukkah eight nights long? Let's look at what the Talmud asks and answers. The sages taught on the 25th of Kislev that days of Hanukkah are eight. One may not eulogize on them, and one may not fast on them. This is because when the Greeks entered the sanctuary, they defiled all the oils that were in the sanctuary, and when the Hasmonean monarchy overcame them and emerged victorious over them, they searched and found only one cruise of oil that remained with the seal of the high priest, and there was sufficient oil there to light the menorah for only one day. Now a miracle occurred, and they lit the menorah f from it for eight days. The next year, the sages instituted those days and made them holidays with the recitation of Hallel and prayers of thanksgiving. The Hallel prayers are a portion of Psalms 113 through 118, which is also recited in the prayer service on the festivals and on Rosh Chodesh. And the 14th step of the Passover Seder is also a recitation of the Hallel. So there's a connection here between Hanukkah and Passover. But there's more. Seven represents all that is found within this world. There are seven days of the week, seven classic pl planets, and seven musical notes. In fact, the world itself was created in seven days. And then there's the number eight, which represents that which is above and beyond. That which does not fit into the neat slots that hold the bits and pieces of our lives. The number eight evokes the transcendent and the godly. Eight is the number of miracles. Alright, point number two, light after dark. The Hanukkah candles must burn after nightfall since their purpose is to bring light into darkness. But they need to be lit early enough that someone will be around to see them. The lights need to be seen so they can serve their function of reminding others of the great miracle that God brought about. Now it's called the silent holiday. Hanukkah is the only Jewish holiday, holiday not mentioned in the 24 books of the Bible. That's because the canon was sealed by the men of the Great Assembly, who flourished two centuries before the Hanukkah miracle. Nor does it have a tractate in the Talmud that discusses its observances. Instead, it gets a by-the-way mention in tractate Shabbat in the context of discussing Shabbat candles. That's the tractate of the Talmud that's dedicated to all the laws of Shabbat, both the creative activities forbidden on the day of rest, as well as its various associated obligations. Now, the Hanukkah candles, by extension, the Hanukkah holiday, 
uh, get there in time in the Talmudic Sun in this uh, article. But we also see that in John 10, Yeshua goes into the temple and it says that he entered at the Feast of Dedication. So it does appear in the Bible if you consider the Gospels and the Epistles part of the Bible. It doesn't appear in the Hebrew Bible, unfortunately. Now there is an allusion to it if you count the days at the end of Daniel and you start from the right point in time. I believe the 1335 days, uh, the, the, the longest number of days is a completion of the restoration of earth and the cleansing and purification process after Yeshua, the Messiah, returns to earth with all of the believers. And the, the date you come to is Kislev 25. If you calculate from the right points in time. So before there were potatoes, there was cheese. Today there's a widespread custom to enjoy potato latkes on Hanukkah, since the oil they are fried in reminds us of the miracle of the flames on the Temple Menorah burning for eight days. Um, but there's an older custom to eat cheese pancakes on Hanukkah, which is reminiscent of the dairy meal that the brave Judith fed the Greek general Holofernes before she decapitated him in his sleep, saving her village. Apparently, cheese latkes morphed into potato latkes. Potatoes were unknown in the old world until the late 16th century, and therefore a new custom was born. So you light a Hillel menorah. Uh, in the days of the Talmud, there were two major academies of learning, Hillel and Shammai. And the House of Hillel taught that every night of Hanukkah we add another candle, as we do today. The House of Shammai, on the other hand, maintained that we begin with eight lights on the first night and light one less flame every night, ending Hanukkah with a single flame. Tempted to try the Shammai template? Well, the time to do that is yet to come. Tradition tells us that when Messiah comes, we will follow the rulings of the House of Shammai. But until then, there is a beautiful lesson to be learned from the Hillel model. Add more light every night. Every little bit of lights add up to create something brilliant. So, point six, Syrians, Greeks, Hellenists, or Yevanim. So we sometimes hear of Greeks, Syrians, or even Hellenists in the Hanukkah story. So who exactly were the interlopers uh, who were expelled by the Maccabees? There are, they were all of the above. Uh, after the death of Alexander the Great, his empire was broken up between the Seleucid Greek Empire, based in Syria, and the Ptolemaic Empire, which had its base in Alexandria, Egypt. The soldiers stationed in Judea belonged to the Syrian Greeks. And who were the Hellenists and the Yevanim? We ask. The very same people. Hella is the Greek word for Greece, and Yevan is how we say it in Hebrew. Now, just to make things a little bit more confusing, there were also the Hellenized Jews, or Mit Yavnim in Hebrew, who sided with the Greeks, slash Yevanim, slash Hellenists, slash Syrians, slash Seleucids, and posed an even greater threat to the survival of traditional Jewish life. Now, Mit Yavnim is a Hebrew construction to say it's a reflexive verb, meaning it's something you do to yourself. So it's like those who Greekized themselves. All right, moving on. Menorahs everywhere. 
On the first Hanukkah, candles were lit all over the courtyard of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the Beit HaMikdash. This brought the Hanukkah light from the inner sanctum of the temple, the holiest spot on earth, out into the open. As Jews continue to observe Hanukkah all over the world, the ripples of holiness continue to widen and expand. Now, this might be a little bit of a review of what we said earlier, but uh, most Jewish holidays begin on only four out of the seven days of the week. For example, the first day of Rosh Hashanah can be Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, or Shabbat, but never Sunday, Wednesday, or Friday. However, since the month preceding Hanukkah is Heshvan, which can have 29 or 30 days, Hanukkah can actually begin on any of the days of the week, except for Tuesday. So you'll never start Hanukkah on a Tuesday. Point number nine, were the Maccabees really so great? So any kid who attends Chabad can tell you that the heroes of the Hanukkah story are the Maccabees, or for that matter, almost any synagogue in the world, um, a child could tell you the heroes of the Hanukkah story are the Maccabees. Uh, they're the clan who led the brave insurgency against the Greek invaders, but it wasn't all good. Judah Maccabee and his family were Kohanim, members of the priestly tribe, chosen by God to minister in the Holy Temple. And Judah Maccabee's successors took the kingship for themselves, uh, something that rightfully belonged to the descendants of King David from the tribe of Judah. Now, it didn't take long until the monarchy of Judah was dragged down into a series of unending power grabs and blood intrigue, bloody intrigue, with king after king trying to imitate the very same Greeks that their ancestors had ousted from the land. Now here's something from more modern times. Uh, for most of his life, Avraham Genin, G-E-N-I-N, lit the menorah in the privacy of his own home or in the synagogue. Who He was a former soldier in the Red Army and lost his foot to a German bomb. But that didn't prevent him from walking to synagogue every week, an effort that took him an hour and a half. A stalwart Hasid who refuses to bow to Stalin and his minions, who served bravely as a mohel, a mohel is the person that, a trained expert who performs the ritual circumcision. And a teacher of Torah, he was a beacon of light in a godless communist era. But Abraham Genin had the unthinkable happen. By Hanukkah of 1991, cracks had formed in the Iron Curtain, and in the presence of approximately 6,000 Jewish people, Avraham Ginnon kindled a giant menorah inside the Kremlin Palace of Congresses. It was the second year that a large public menorah had been lit in the USSR. The previous year, a menorah had been placed near the Russia's White House. Public menorah lightings at Hanukkah have been a staple of Russian Jewish life, or Jewish-Russian life, ever since. Alright, and then let's talk about the last couple points, Hanukkah in space. In December of 1993, Space Shuttle Endeavour was sent into space to service the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, one of the astronauts bravely performed a spacewalk to repair the telescope, Jeffrey Hoffman. Knowing that he would be stuck in space over Hanukkah, Hoffman made sure to bring along a dreidel and a traveling menorah so that he'd be able to celebrate. Because of the lack of gravity and safety concerns, there was no way to light candles. Then, via satellite communication, he showed his Hanukkah supplies gave his dreidel a twirl in the air, and wished Jews everywhere a happy Hanukkah. So, um, last point about the menorah. Oh, sorry, I've got 13 here. The menorah, should you put it in the window or 
in a doorway. So the most common custom outside of Israel is to light the menorah at a window. In Mishnaic times, however, the menorah would be placed outside on the left side of the door leading in from the street. This led to a unique law. Normally, if a person placed a candle in the street and a straw-bearing donkey brushed by too close, the owner of the candle would be responsible for the ensuing conflagration. On Hanukkah, however, he would be exempt because he was doing a mitzvah. Now, why was the menorah placed to the left of the door? Because the mezuzah is placed on the right. With the mezuzah on one side and the menorah on the other, you are literally surrounded by holiness. The harsh realities of the diaspora, both socio-political and meteorological, forced the menorah to an indoor doorway. And some communities developed a custom to put it on the windowsill instead. Window sill. Even today, many people prefer to light in a doorway surrounding themselves with the mitzvahs of mezuzah and the mitzvah of menorah, just as in ancient times. So, the purpose of the menorah is to spread awareness to as many people as possible. This is why the menorah is also lit in the synagogue every night. But in recent years, the mitzvah of menorah has rippled out even further. During Hanukkah of 73, for instance, some yeshiva students were planning to go to Manhattan to distribute menorahs. They figured that if they could put a giant menorah on top of a car, many more people would notice them and take the menorahs they were distributing. Using wooden scraps and cinder blocks, they managed to take a lar make a large menorah and tie it to the roof of a station wagon. The menorah turned out to be a success. By 1974, Rabbi Sh Abraham Shimtov had the unusual, perhaps wild idea of lighting a menorah right in front of Independence Hall, which houses the Liberty Bell, the icon of American freedom. In 1975, on the opposite U.S. coast, Rabbi Drizin in San Francisco had made arrangements to light an oversized wooden menorah in the city's Union Square. Bill Graham, a child survivor of the Holocaust and a well-known music, well music promoter, donated a 22-foot-tall mahogany menorah, and the tradition grew into its current forms. In 2016, 15,000 large public menorahs were set up, and the public lightings and Hanukkah events that were held in more than 90 countries around the world included 5,000 menorah-top vehicles roaming the roads, creating holiday awareness in cities, towns, and rural areas around the world. So, that is a Chabad tradition, but many others are uh, bringing the light of Hanukkah uh, by having menorah lighting parties and uh, Hanukkah festivities uh, outdoors when possible. So let's get back to the month of Kislev. Uh, I'd like to take a look at what the significance of the rainbow is in Judaism. So the rainbow is the sign for the month, and we're also going to find out uh, that the rainbow... The rainbow has a significance in Judaism. So let's take a look. It is a beautiful and colorful aspect of God's world, but it's also a reminder of tragedy. We are taught not to stare at it, but we do make a special blessing when it appears in the sky. Let's see what the Torah has to say about the rainbow. Now, just to backtrack for a second, I have never heard this tradition of not staring at a rainbow i've only heard of not staring at the sun so that you physically don't blind yourself whether temporarily or worse so we'll see if we can find out where that tradition comes from but that is definitely a more obscure um, 
observance. So uh, the rainbow brings proof of the covenant that God gave. So as a result of the moral decay of the generation, 1656 years after the world was created, 1656 years from creation, God flooded the world and destroyed it. The only survivors of the flood were Noah, his family, and the animals that were on the ark with them. After a year, when they were finally able to leave the ark, Noah built an altar and brought sacrifices to God. What happened next is recounted in the Torah portion of Noah. God smelled the good smell of Noah's sacrifices, and he said to himself, I will no longer curse the land because of man, since man's inclination is evil from the time of his youth. I will never again destroy all living things as I've just done. And God said to Noah and his sons, I will keep my covenant with you and your descendants, and never again will a flood destroy all life, and there will not be another flood destroying the earth. This is a sign I am making, testifying to the covenant between me and you and all living souls forever. I have put my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between myself and the world. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will be seen in the clouds, and I will remember the covenant between myself and yourselves and all living souls, and there will never again be a flood to destroy all life. The rainbow will be in the clouds, and I will see it and remember the eternal covenant between God and all the living souls on earth. Now, after the flood, the Creator promised that in spite of how man might sin, he would never again make a flood that would destroy the world. He created the rainbow as a sign, a reminder of this covenant he made with the world. So, what blessing do we say when seeing a rainbow? When a rainbow appears in the sky, it is considered a sign that we have sinned, but God has remembered his covenant. Therefore, when seeing a rainbow, it is appropriate to thank God for not making another flood. We thank God by making a special blessing. The sages of the Talmud disagree about the blessing that should be said. One opinion is that we should say, Blessed are you who remembers the covenant, while another opinion prefers, Blessed are you who is faithful to his covenant and stands by his word. And that is from the Talmud Barachot 59a. The final decision melds the two opinions into the following blessing. Blessed are you... Hashem, ruler of the world, who remembers the covenant, who is faithful to his covenant, and stands by his word. Now, a generation without a rainbow. Since the rainbow is a sign that mankind is sinning, a generation that never sees a rainbow is on an especially high level of spirituality and righteous conduct. That is from Likute Sichot, volume 35, Noah 3. The Rebbe explains there that Rashi and the Midrash disagree about whether this phenomenon was the result of the great people alone or if the people who lived then were on a high spiritual level. So the Midrash tells of several generations in which there were such righteous people that no rainbow was seen in their lifetimes. The generation of King Hizkiyahu, which is Hezekiah in English, one of the last righteous kings of the first temple period, the era of the men of the great assembly. This was a panel of 120 prophets and sages, including Ezra, Nehemiah, Mordechai, Daniel, Shimon the righteous, and the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, Malachi, which constituted the ultimate religious authority at the onset of the second temple, Ezra in the 4th century BC. 
of the Second Temple era, sorry, in the 4th century BCE. Among their accomplishments was the composition of the text of our standard prayers and blessings. And the generation of Shimon Bar Yochai, from, he lived from about 100, the year 100 Common Era to 160, and he was a Mishnaic sage and mystic, a student of Rabbi Akiva. And now when he had evoked the wrath of the Roman authorities, he, together with his son Eleazar, hid in a cave for 13 years where their needs were miraculously provided for. And he authored the Zohar. So, the, and then the last generation that was said to have not seen a rainbow was the generation of Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi. And uh, I don't have any history ready to share about him. But it is in this article on Chabad.org uh, regarding the rainbow. So, when no rainbow appeared in the heavens, it was the ultimate sign that there lived a person so righteous that he was a foundation stone of the world. The Talmud tells about a meeting between Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi and Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai in Gan Eden, heaven. Rabbi Shimon asked Rabbi Yehoshua if the rainbow had been seen in his lifetime. When Rabbi Yehoshua <coughs> modestly hid his greatness by saying that it had, Rabbi Shimon said, Then you are not Ben Levi. A rainbow is a natural phenomenon with a simple scientific explanation. Since one can assume that mechanics for rainbows came into being during the six days of creation, the question arises, what exactly happened after the flood when the Creator announced that the rainbow should be a sign of the covenant that he'd established with Noah and his sons? So several explanations have, explanations have been given. Nachmanides posits that the rainbow existed long before the flood, but after the flood, the Creator decided to make it a sign that mankind was sinning. Rabbi Abraham ibn Ezra and Abarbanel say that with the flood, there were physical changes in the world that allowed the rainbow to become visible. According to Ibn Ezra, sunlight became stronger. According to Abarbanel, the atmosphere became thinner. Now the Lubavitcher Rabbi explains in the light of Hasidic teachings, even though the flood brought destruction to the world, there was also an aspect of it that was a blessing. The flood purified the world in the sense that it gave man the ability to refine the material. The clouds, which are formed from the mist, mist that arises from the ground, represents this transformation of the material into something ethereal. After the flood, the clouds were thinner, allowing rainbows to form symbolizing the ability for human endeavor to purify the material world. And then another explanation from the Kli Yakar, which is a commentary to the Torah, highlighting the homiletic or drush written by Shlomo Ephraim of Luntschitz, a student of the Maharshal, says, The rainbow was always visible, but in righteous generations there was less sin. And the populace was so confident that nothing would happen to them that they didn't bother to look at the rainbow and worry about it, being a harbinger of evil. Now, the beauty of the divine presence. A rainbow isn't only a sign of sinning. It can also signify divine revelation. The prophet Ezekiel described a vision in which he had seen the divine presence like a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day with a corona around it. This was how the glory of God appeared and saw it and fell on my face and heard, I heard a voice speaking. And that is from Ezekiel 1 verse 28. 
Because of this vision, there was a Talmudic sage who said that when a person sees a rainbow, he should bow down, prostrate himself in front of God. But others, however, said it was forbidden to do so because it would look like someone was worshipping the rainbow if they did this. However, since the rainbow represents the beauty of the divine presence and the glory of the Creator, the Talmud teaches that it's not proper to stare at a rainbow. However, it is permitted to look at a rainbow for the sign for the sake of making the special blessing on it. So just to repeat there, the, since the rainbow represents the beauty of the divine presence and the glory of the creator, the Talmud teaches that it's not proper to stare at the rainbow. That's from Chagiga 16a. So I don't agree with that. I think the opposite is important. That the longer you can gaze on one, it's temporary. It's not going to be there for an extremely long time and they're so rare why would you not just gaze intently at it not only praising God for its beauty and its miraculous existence but also to see deeper into the spirit and to into the heavens and to have greater revelation and to be thankful for just your eyesight and for the rain and for the cessation of the rain Lastly, it's said to be a sign of the coming of the Messiah. So the Zohar says that before the Messiah comes, an especially bright and colorful rainbow will appear. And that is from the Zohar, volume 172, verse 2. And may we merit seeing this rainbow soon and in our lifetimes. Just want to thank you for tuning in and listening to us uh, with this uh, hopefully unique perspective and different approach to studying the month of Kislev and many things that it contains that are lesser known and lesser discussed. Uh, in our next episode of Kislev, uh, when we come around to this in the, in the next cycle, we'll take a look at the Haftarot, hopefully. And when you have the unique instance of Hanukkah night, one and Hanukkah night eight both falling on Shabbat that there is a second Haftarah passage and as in the second Torah portion I believe that you say that doesn't get read every year uh, only once in you know a handful of years when Hanukkah actually falls on Hanukkah day one and day eight fall on on Friday night so take a look at that if you're interested and uh, there are some articles on that but uh, on Chabad.org for instance and other places you can look up uh, especially this is a really good uh, humash that I recommend used by the conservative synagogues with great commentaries from a variety of, of sources that are easy to understand for all levels of students, but the Etz Chaim Torah and Commentary uh, is an excellent uh, Torah with commentary that you can read weekly, and that's published by the Jewish Publication Society. So thanks again for being here. We hope this was edifying and blesses you, and we look forward to bringing you another edition of Footsteps of the Messiah. Shalom, shalom.